0: Now, Father, we have sung your praises, we have sung some of the greatest doctrines in your word relative to our salvation and your grace, our helplessness and your provision, our sin and Christ's righteousness. You have made us into a body, you have, by your grace and your sovereign power, have drawn us together into one man, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, your representative here on earth. And so, Father, we give you praise, and we worship you because of the privilege that it is to be a part of your church. We love your church. She is your bride, and we wish to be found faithful as your bride, your beloved, And so teach us, Father, how to relate to one another according as you have gifted us and as you have put within us your spirit to enable us to minister grace to one another, ascribing glory to your name as we have opportunity to do so in all things. And pray now, Father, that you would send your spirit to move in our hearts, to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, to encourage, to exhort, to do whatever needs to be done in our hearts. Perhaps there are some here who even need to be born again. Lord, we pray that you would have your way with us, have your way with me now. And as we prepare for the Lord's table, I pray that you would lay our hearts bare before you and that we would willingly open them to you for judgment. May you be glorified in our repentance and faith, for we pray it by the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen. Turn with me now to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and there's actually two scriptures I'm going to read this morning. As you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I have a confession to make, and that is I got so wrapped up in my studies this week, uh, pounding out that, this message that I forgot all about the Lord's table, and it was somewhat of a surprise last night when Joe Oliver called me and said he was too sick to do it, and would I do it in his place? which means that I have very little time to preach this message. Um, I have about 15 or 20 minutes, and that's not adequate time, but uh, maybe we can pray for the gift of miracles since we are working through the gifts. Uh, That's not likely to happen, so I'll preach the introduction of this message, and we will get back to it next week, but I think there's enough here that will feed your soul if you will allow the Spirit to work And so a couple of texts to kind of set us up for this week and next, and frankly, the week after that as well. 1 Corinthians 12, and out of uh, respect and honor of the Word of God, let's stand together as we read, and we will begin with verse 4. Paul writes, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons, But to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And to another, the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits into another various kinds of tongues, into another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Now, turn with me to Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12. If you're thinking, I really want to get a better handle on the spiritual gifts, where do I look in Scripture? Two key places, First Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. So here we go, Romans 12 beginning in verse um, four. Follow along with me now as I read. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, If service in his serving, or uh, uh, he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. According to Greek legend, Sisyphus was once the king of Corinth, And for defying the gods with his insolent wit, he was sentenced to the eternal drudgery of pushing a stone up a hill. And whenever he would get anywhere near the summit, the stone would suddenly roll back to the bottom, where Sisyphus would have to start rolling the stone all over again. And for many, the fate of uh, Sisyphus is... Uh, really a picture of their lives. Countless people consider life nothing more than kind of an endless treadmill of meaningless activity. They go to work, they crank out their job, and they go home. And about midlife, you know, you get to your upper 40s to mid-50s, you start wondering, is there any meaning to life? What have I done? What have I accomplished? no eternal consequences as far as they can tell, no worthy purpose, no higher cause, just the endless task of rolling the stone up to the hill only to discover that it has rolled back down. In the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about this kind of life because he lived it. It It's kind of a, a spiritual journal for us to learn from, describing life without God. He was the wealthiest man anyone had ever known, and he used his great wealth to seek satisfaction and meaning in every conceivable activity under the sun. That's his phrase, under the sun. If there's anything to do under the sun, I've done it. He sought out all manner of human wisdom and understanding, just insert the term, education, but found that human philosophies and ideas were meaningless. He gave himself over to the accumulating of possessions, like so many of us Americans, and discovered that they offered no lasting satisfaction. He threw himself into his work, and he built some of the most uh, incredible feats of architecture the world has ever known. But in the end, he concluded that seeking meaning and satisfaction in such things is like, in his words, Chasing after the wind. As time went on, he sought for meaning in great riches and drunkenness, licentious living, but in them no meaning was to be found. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, he writes, All is vanity and the chasing after the wind. You ever felt like that? Feel like your life is going nowhere? Your wheels are spinning, but you're not getting any traction. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. You just bring home your paycheck, hope you have enough to pay your bills and eat your meals and go back to work. It's not the way life was supposed to be lived for the believer. Sometimes life is hard, yes. Sometimes you have to do mundane activity on the job, yes. But God has given you that job for a purpose. There's general purposes, and there are specific purposes The overarching purpose, as we understand it, is this. We have a purpose for our existence. Let's say it together. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. That's right. That's why we're here. Or another way that we like to say it is that we exist to show the world what God is like. So if you're in the factory cranking out little Debbie Brownies, talk about a monotonous job. That's what I used to do right after college. It was a delicious job, but it was monotonous. You're watching the brownies go by all day, all day. I work third shift, and boy, it was monotonous. But if that's your job, guess what? I knew what my purpose was. My purpose was every time I took a break, not only to snag a brownie on the way out, but to find somebody I could talk to about Jesus. Whether it was the gospel, whether it was just sharing something out of my time in the Word, whether it was just a word of encouragement or counsel, whether I was working at American Airlines when I came to seminary, doing reservations—talk about boring—that was more boring than the brownies. <laughs> but you know what? People would line up during their breaks at my chair so that when I wasn't on a on a uh, on a phone call doing a reservation, they were telling me about their kids or their broken marriage or, you know, whatever it was. And, and does the Word of God say anything about this? There's purpose. There's meaning there, because your job, wherever you are, is to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things, to the glory of God, in the joy of all peoples. Another way of saying it is simply that you are to live in such a way that shows those people what God is like, or shows the world what Christ is like, or shows the world what the gospel is like. You know why you deal with sin issues and asking for forgiveness the way the Bible says sometimes in the hearing of other people, because we want to show them this is what the gospel is like. This is how it holds relationships together and keeps us unified. That's why we're here. That's why we live. But in the midst of all of that, God has specifically gifted each individual Christian to be especially good at ministering grace in specific ways. And this is what the spiritual gifts are all about, as we've been learning for the last two weeks. They are gifts of grace. Gift, grace, comes from the root charis, uh, charismata, from which we get charismatic. We've learned this over the past couple of weeks. It's all about ministering grace. It's all about you having a, a specific spirit-empowered means of of demonstrating and channeling grace to other people that the rest of us, frankly, can't do it the way you do it. Because your gift is your own. And so it is with those who don't know God that if they don't understand the meaning of life, it's hopeless, it's meaningless. But for the believer the one in whom the very Holy Spirit dwells, there is a great purpose and meaning in life because there is a cause that is infinitely higher and infinitely more amazing than amassing wealth and experiencing temporary pleasure. Or to give you another category in which to think of your purpose in life is this. Jesus said, I will build my church That's what he's doing. It's the only institution God ever said that he would build. And all the things that we do in proclaiming the excellencies of Christ, showing the world what God is like and Christ is like and the gospel is like, using our spiritual gifts, all of it is for that specific purpose of building his church. Even the death of our brother pastor in Arlington this week who was murdered, even that In the mystery of God's providence, he is doing 10,000 things through that tragedy and crime that will be used to build his church. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. If men whose lives are typified by the mythological king of Corinth, if they would but read the letters of Paul and see what God has planned. So many in the church who live meaningless lives because they are not living the way God has called them to live. They do not see themselves as God sees them. They don't realize that God saved them for more than salvation. And so as we continue our study in the spiritual gifts, we should understand that God gives them to empower us to labor with Christ in building his church And beloved, what an awesome privilege that is. It is also an awesome responsibility, and we feel that when we are given opportunity to share our faith and we are tempted not to. We feel that responsibility. But oh my, what a privilege. What a privilege to be God's emissaries. What a privilege to be God's ambassadors. What a privilege to be the people through whom God shows what he is like. That's why he created you in his own image. Before we get looking at the gifts in particular, I want to do a couple of things first, and we'll have to pick up on looking at the specific gifts next week. But there have been a couple of questions asked me, just even in the first two weeks of tackling this section of First Corinthians, for those of you who are new. We're just moving. We started with verse 1 of chapter 1, and now we're in chapter 12, and sometime before Jesus comes back, we hope to be done this book, but we are right in the middle of studying chapter... 12, 13, and 14, relative to spiritual gifts in the church. And someone asked last week, are spiritual gifts the same as natural talents? Good question. And the answer to that is no. They're not the same as natural talents. The spiritual gifts are not natural abilities. You can't say that you have the gift of baking pies or of playing the piano. I know one person, or maybe it's the whole family in this church who says that uh, their gift is sarcasm or maybe it's their love language. I can't remember which one they said it was. Um, this is not about love languages and I'm probably never going to teach on love languages. But you've got to understand that, that you may have what's called the gift of gab, but it doesn't mean that you are gifted to preach or teach. And, and frankly, the very opposite, it's kind of an unusual thing, I mean, kind of a strange thing, at least in my mind, that God would give me to preach and teach, but when it comes just to mingling with people, I mean, I don't. I, I feel like I'm all thumbs. I, I feel like I got great big feet and little tiny ears, and I don't know what to do with myself. How do you have just general conversation about nothing? And I'm just not good with that. But you know, th- there was a, a pastor he used to be Paul Renfro uh, here used to tease me. That uh, when I left the pulpit, when, whenever I get out of the pulpit, um, the Lord writes over my head, Ichabod, the glory has departed. Because anything I say from there on is going to be, you know, thumbs in the mouth or I don't know what. Old Harry Ironside, H.A. Ironside, used to speak of the pathetic situation of those who felt that they were gifted, uh, gifted at preaching but complained that the people they were preaching to did not have the gift of listening that's a problem. Just because you have the ability to communicate verbally doesn't mean you have the spiritual gift that, goes, that is necessary for preaching and teaching. To the contrary, it may very well be the opposite. And I've met men like this. It's a glorious thing. It's, it's glorious because it's so counterintuitive that a man that you meet who can hardly get three words together without stuttering or whose voice is kind of grady and high-pitched, you know, almost like fingernails down a chalkboard. Some of you are cringing even as I say it. And yet when they stand to preach, all of those are still in play, but the Holy Spirit goes and saves some and encourages another and rebukes another. It's amazing. It's amazing. He may have no natural ability and yet he may be spiritually gifted to preach or teach. And so is it a natural ability? It may very well be that God gifts you according to your natural ability or in harmony with your natural ability. C.H. Spurgeon would be a classic example of Guy Charles Spurgeon who was a fantastic orator and also gifted, apparently, by the Holy Spirit of God to preach and to teach and to write and about 10 other different gifts that I wish I had and, and it was amazing what God did through that man. But I, I tell you what, guys who are gifted, excuse me, guys who have natural talent in speaking, natural ability, are really gonna struggle because sometimes they're going to be tempted to think that the reason that great things are happening in the church is because of my natural ability. And God has to humble such men as he does all of us. And so our spiritual gifts, natural ability, Not in their power and not in their effect. But on the other hand, God can use your natural ability and inclinations as a part of your spiritual gifting. It's just not necessarily so. So don't confuse the two. Unbelievers have natural abilities. Doesn't mean they have spiritual gifts. Secondly, how do the gifts of the Spirit relate to the fruit of the Spirit? It's a great question. And this is what I hope you learn more than anything else today. Uh, Have you ever wondered why Paul tucked 1 Corinthians 13, which we typically refer to as the what chapter, the love chapter? Why did he put that right in the middle of this controversial section, 12, 13, and 14? You know, all the debate over these spiritual gifts and the working of miracles and signs and wonders and all of that right here. Why did he put in the love chapter right in the middle of all of that? You ever asked yourself that? You see, the church of Corinth had some amazing gifts and could perform some astonishing miracles, but they became a source of contention in the body. The gifts of the Spirit, listen, the problem at Corinth was this. The gifts of the Spirit were not being regulated by the fruit of the Spirit. Did you get that? Listen to me, I'll say it again. The gifts of the, of the Spirit, I'll try to say it again. The gifts of the Spirit were not regulated by by the fruit of the Spirit. And when the gifts aren't being regulated by the fruit, it goes bad, it goes bad. And that's why Paul starts off in chapter 13 by saying this, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nada. Nothing. It's worthless. It's worthless. Spiritual gifts can be worthless in the church, even harmful, if those gifts of the Spirit are not regulated by what? The fruit of the Spirit. We've said this many times around here. The fruit of the Spirit, for you personally, is born in your life, but it's not for you to enjoy. That fruit is born in your life for the people around you to enjoy. You see, the gifts of the Spirit make the church effective in ministry, But the fruit of the Spirit preserves the unity. The gifts of the Spirit define what believers should do. The fruit of the Spirit defines what the believers are. The gifts of the Spirit are important, but the fruit of the Spirit is imperative. You don't have to know what your spiritual gift is to exercise the fruit of the Spirit. When the fruit of the Spirit does not govern the gifts of the Holy Spirit, conflicts and disunity are, listen to me, inevitable. Because your focus is entirely about experiencing the gift or causing other people to be impressed by you or by me. And so, no matter how gifted. No matter how gifted we are, our relationship should be marked by these things. Are you ready? No matter how gifted you are, your life, your character, your relationship with every other individual in the body body should be marked by these things. Here they are. They're simple and profound. Love, joy. By the way, what's love? Love. Love is giving to the other person whatever it is you have that they need because God wants you to. That's love. For God so loved the world that he gave. Joy, that's something that, that the Holy Spirit experiences be, or, or, or produces between two people who are living in harmony. Peace, it's not the peace that passes all understanding. This is the peace that governs your relationship with other people when perhaps otherwise there would be war. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You get the picture? These need to be in place before you're exercising your spiritual gift because the fruit of the Spirit governs the gifting of the Spirit. And so if the gift of the Spirit is running off like a loose cannon doing whatever it wishes, paying no attention to what the Holy Spirit wants to produce in terms of fruit, the church is in serious trouble. Serious trouble. And that was the main problem in Corinth, was that believers had great zeal for the gifts, but they had failed to love one another. The principle here is this. Never allow your passion for ministry to override your love for people. Never allow your passion for ministry to override your love for people. Don't steamroll people because you got a goal in ministry. If you're working on the grounds and you're trying to get a tree cut or flowers planted and and somebody doesn't show up on time or they don't bring the appropriate supplies when you wanted to or they're just frankly in your way, if you haul off and get mad at them and start yelling at them, listen, that's the fruit of the flesh. You may be gifted to serve. You may be gifted to organize and administrate and lead. But if the Holy Spirit's not governing you by his fruit then your gifting is causing problems. And what you need for your good is a good ministry of the grace of discipline, rebuke. There have been some other questions raised in the past couple of weeks about the gifts of the Spirit, and we're not going to have time to look at those this morning. In fact, we're not going to have time to look at most of what I intended to talk about this morning But before we go any further, and before I close for today, let me take you to one more passage that will help kind of set the structure for us for next time. This is 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, starting with verse, we'll start with verse 7 just to get some context. A couple of things we want to see in this text before we get started, and that will at least indicate the structure that I'm going to follow as we get into identifying what the spiritual gifts are. So follow along with me first Peter 4 starting with verse 7. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift employ it in, a, in employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever now i want you to notice That Peter, um, Peter tells us that we are to be good stewards of our respective gifts. Now, what's the implication of that? The implication is that the gifts were not yours to possess as your own, to do with as you please. They belong to another. They belong to your master. And he has given them to you, yes, for your own joy, but only as they are being administered for his glory. And as they are being ministered to to others for his glory, they need to be kept in check. You need to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We need to take care of the gifts and use them only as our master prescribes. They do not belong to us, they are his. And most importantly, we need to remember that one day we will give an account of how we use them or abuse them. Secondly, notice that he makes a distinction between two categories of gifts, which is going to be helpful for us as we look at them next week. Two categories of gifts, and that is the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. Look with me again in verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Notice that he doesn't give us a breakdown of of a list of gifts like Paul does. Paul does it in two different places, and frankly, as we saw last week, the gifts are significantly different and different again when he talks about the gifting that God gives to the church in Ephesians chapter 4. But here, Peter doesn't even mess with that. He just says, listen, look, there are, there are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. And so those of you who, oh, where is it? In 1 Peter 4 verse, uh, yeah, verse 11, for whoever speaks, is to do so as one who is speaking in the utterances of God and whoever serves um, as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So understand, you are stewards of these gifts. They're not yours, they are God's. And God wants you to speak on his behalf and serve on his behalf because your purpose in life is to show the world what God is like. So don't say things that he wouldn't say. And don't do things that he wouldn't do, make sure that as you administer your gift, you are representing God. Now, I'd planned the rest of our time to look at the two lists of gifts that he gives in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, and we're going to have to postpone that for next week because there's something more important to do this morning than unpacking that text, and that is coming together as a body to share the Lord's table. Listen, beloved, uh, this is a beautiful thing. And we've talked about this so many, many, many times. The Lord's table is precious to us because it symbolizes the very foundation of our unity and existence as a church because it points to the cross. Herein lies the basis, the ground, the cement, of our unity. Not that we have common interests, a lot of us don't. Not that we have common backgrounds, many of us don't. Not that we have common ambitions, being outside spiritual ambitions, many of us don't. The thing that unifies us is the cross of Christ, the gospel, the forgiveness of sins that we receive through the precious blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's approach it together with that in mind. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time once again to share in your table. I pray that you would be honored and glorified in us as we do, and we would examine our hearts carefully so that we can know that we are participating in this in a worthy manner. Be glorified in us, Father, now as we examine our hearts and participate in this table which you have set for us to commune with you and one another. We give you praise for it now in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.